So let me pray for us one more time before we get started. Father, a simple prayer tonight. I pray that you would encounter every student here tonight in a real and tangible way with your love. I thank you that you meet us with an embrace, Father. And I pray uh, that we would just stare at you, the source of perpetual wonder tonight, that we would be in awe of you, that we'd worship you in spirit and in truth. Reveal yourself tonight, not only as the written word, but as the living word. Step into the room tonight. Tear the roof off this place. And Lord, encounter students with your presence and with your love. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm going to hit pause since we've got just the seniors here tonight from what I was talking about this morning just a little bit. But since it's still from the Bible, it's a similar theme. We'll pick right back up when everyone's here tomorrow. I don't want them to come in on like part three and it make no sense. Um, But we're going to talk about the issue of identity tonight. And I feel like identity becomes this pressing issue really at every stage of life, but especially during seasons of transition. And you guys as seniors are going to be heading into a season of very significant transition, whether you're headed to a four-year university, a community college, or straight into the work field. These next couple of years of your life, again, being a young adult pastor, are some of the greatest years of transition, starting families, new relationships. And that question of identity is going to come up again and again. It's just simply a question of who am I? And ultimately, it's a matter of where do you look for your acceptance? So I want to talk to you tonight about this question of where do you put your acceptance? T.D. Jake said this one time, people often ruin their lives trying to gain something they already possess. You start to think about all the different places people go looking for acceptance, all the places that people look for validation. And it's pretty easy to see how it can quickly ruin your life. Whereas if we live from a place of already having obtained acceptance from the Father's love, that we don't need to look for it in those places. And I believe that all of us have taken our need and these identity questions to the wrong places at some point in our lives. And probably many of us, if we're being honest, are doing so in the current season that we're in. And I believe that all of our present insecurities and identity gaps, those things that we're trying to fill in us, spring from this question of who am I and where do I look for acceptance? And uh, if you've got a Bible with you, I want to encourage you to turn to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. Doesn't look like there's a lot of Bibles. All right, we'll hit pause real quick. I think about this often. I used to work with students, and again, I work with college students. And uh, sometimes there's this sense of like, well, you're going to read the Bible to me, so I don't need to bring mine. And I think we forget because we have such access to the Bible that people daily, like literally daily, are willing to lose their life trying to smuggle Bibles into countries where it's forbidden access. And why is it forbidden access in certain countries? Because dictators and bad rulers know that if people get their hands on this, this has the power to change nations and to radically, up, like, literally flip countries upside down and transform lives. And uh, I think sometimes when we have such access to things, I think about it in terms of, like, uh, if you don't live in a mansion right now, but you drove by somebody's mansion or somebody who is like a billionaire, you would think, oh, man, it'd be so awesome to live there until you would live there for about two years. And it would still be awesome. It would have just lost some of its wonder and appeal to you because it would have become normal. Things that become normal start to lose their appeal to us. And we forget how awesome they are. Like the fact that God could have produced factories to produce oxygen, but instead he gave us beautiful trees of all shapes, sizes, and varieties for us to look at. And that he, you know, from the time you were, you know, a baby, you came into this earth without giving any conscious thought to all the complex systems that are going on in your body. That's just become normal to us, right? And sometimes the radical power of this Bible, and especially when we attend Christian schools, can just become normal to us. But one of my favorite quotes of all time is that the four living creatures that are described in the Bible, do you know that they've been in the exact same room, staring at the exact same man, singing the exact same word forever? 
and they're not bored yet. Like they're not held there against their will. God is not forcing them to stay in the throne room. But they've been given access. And Jesus is so mesmerizing, so beautiful, so interesting that they don't want to leave that room. They don't want to look at anything else because they have realized, as Alex was talking about, he is the source of fulfillment. They don't need to run off and look at other things to find true fulfillment and true satisfaction. So I want to just challenge you because I challenge my own life with this all the time. Not to ever get bored with Jesus because he's the least boring thing in all the earth. But sometimes when we're in a Christian school, we do chapel every week and Bible study, maybe church on Sunday with your parents. It can feel like, okay, I've been through the motions. I've sung these words before. I've thought about this passage before. But look at it with new eyes tonight as the one who's in the throne room, the one who created the universe and let it become anything but normal to you tonight. Luke chapter 15, starting in verse 11. To illustrate the point further, and the Bible is full of context clues. What point is he trying to illustrate? Look above at the previous two paragraphs. He tells the story of the lost sheep leaving the 99 to find the one, the lost coin, the widow who loses one of her 10 minas, and she flips the house upside down looking for this lost coin. So he's elaborating the point of looking for something that's lost, but of value to the owner. Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. And a few days later, this younger son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land. And there he wasted all his money in wild living. And about the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him, and the man sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. And the young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him. But no one gave him anything. And when he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, At home, even the hired servants have enough food to spare, and here I am dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you, and I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on. As a hired servant. So he returned home to his father, and while he was still a long way off, the father saw him coming, and filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, kissed him. And his son said to him, Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you, and I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. But his father said to the servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him, get a ring for his finger, and sandals for his feet, and kill the calf we've been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast, for this son of mine was dead. And has now returned to life. He was lost, but now he's found. So the party began. And meanwhile, the older son was in the fields working. And when he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house. And he asked one of the servants what was going on. Your brother is back, he was told. And your father has killed the fattened calf. We are celebrating because of his safe return. So I want to, when I step into a story, I want to literally take the role of an observer before I even try to get any application for my life. I usually just try to like step into the story, observe what's going on, take the position of one of the characters. And I want us to assume the role of the younger son tonight who goes to his father asking for his inheritance before he's even died. And what is he ultimately doing? He's taking his need for personal validation and acceptance to all the typical places. We can assume from the story that he takes it to women, or if this was a female in the story, he would, she would take it to men, to relationships and sexual immorality. We can assume that he takes his question, his need for acceptance, his search for identity to parties and substances. And we can assume that he looks for in popularity, status, and wealth. But every one of these pursuits resulted in more emptiness than he ever bargained for, right? What does he end up? He ends up totally starving. 
I want to ask you tonight, where are you taking your need for acceptance? Where are you taking your question of who am I? And your list probably, especially at this age, is not the same as the prodigal son. But we've all taken our need for acceptance to things that ultimately left us feeling empty and unsatisfied. Right? Like anybody ever had a breakup and you ended up feeling way worse than you did before you went into the relationship? Like just felt that pit in your stomach, right? Because you thought it was going to be the thing that was going to satisfy you, fulfill you forever. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with breakups. But when we take our questions, who am I, to the wrong places, right? For some of you, it might be sports. I worked with college athletes before I got into ministry. I was a collegiate strength coach. And I remember actually sitting in an office one time with a soccer player who had played professional soccer in England before he came over and played soccer at UNC Charlotte. He was extremely skilled. And this man, when he finally realized that his college career was done, sat in my office and told me that he was on the brink of suicide. Why? Because for years, this is a true story, he had put all of his identity in sports. And when all of a sudden he was no longer a soccer player, right? Like he could go play intramural sports, but his identity was no longer in like a successful position. He didn't know who he was. That's a scary thought, right? Like you're not wrong for playing sports, but when we take the true question of who am I and we put it in things that can never fully satisfy, we're always going to come up more empty than we thought. For some of you, it might be academics, right? For some of us, it could be social media, where we put something out there for the world to click and to like and to give us instant validation that they like what we're putting out there, right? For some of us, it could even be your parents, that maybe you have overbearing parents. And what you're really looking for is that you want to just appease them or satisfy them, right? But ultimately, this question can only be answered by the Father, because when we take our question to the wrong source, we're always going to end up with the wrong answer. 100% of the time. 100% of the time. And when the question goes unanswered, we leave room for guilt, shame, and the spirit of rejection to settle on us. Only the Father can answer the question of who you really are. So in our story, kind of looking at it line by line, eventually, maybe the key moment in the story is that the son's been out there. He, he had his season of fun, right? He's out there, wild parties, prostitutes, lots of friends. Not good friends, bad friends, because as soon as the money dries up, where do the friends go? all disappear, right? They don't want to hang out anymore. They're not hitting them up anymore saying, hey, it's Friday night, let's go out. No, he has nothing that he can then offer them, right? These are friends and relationships with hooks attached to it. Like they send their love out because they don't really know who they are, always with a hook attached to it, which means that they're not giving their love freely, but they're actually expecting when they send love out to you in a relationship, that's going to give something back to them. And as soon as it stops giving them what they want, they're gone, right? So he finally comes to his senses. He's sleeping with the pigs, right? And all of a sudden, he realizes things were actually a lot better when I was in my father's house. This is a moment that all of us, before we come to Christ, have to come to. This moment of coming to our senses, right? And he's actually motivated by physical hunger, but I believe that his need reached much, much deeper than that. The weight of guilt and shame that was upon him in this moment reached so much deeper than the pit of physical hunger that was in his stomach. And I believe that for many of you, there's a very real pit in your stomach until that question goes answered of who am I? What's my purpose? And am I ultimately accepted? Do I have a place of belonging, right? So he comes to his senses and he decides there's this moment of repentance. Repentance just means to turn around, to turn back in the direction of God, where he starts walking home, right? And immediately he starts to plan his speech. Anybody in the room ever known that you were going to get in trouble when you got home and started planning the speech in your head, right? You guys have done this. What had happened was, you know, and you start to think about what details do I have to put in the story to mostly tell the truth, but avoid the maximal amount of punishment, right? You guys have definitely, we've all been here before. We know it's imminent that when we come home, there's, you know, a nice little surprise waiting for us. 
But his speech sounds like this. Maybe I can come back as a servant. Maybe I can work for my father. Maybe I can earn my way back. But I'm certainly not good enough to ever be a son again. You know what all of those things sound like? Every religious system in the world outside of relationship with Jesus Christ. If the good that I do ultimately outweighs the bad, maybe I can earn favor with God. Maybe I can position myself as some type of religious worker and do enough service to somehow make God like me. But I can't actually abide as a son, right? So he starts to plan this speech in his head. And as he's walking, and while he's still a long way off, the father sees him in the distance. And why can the father see him in the distance? Because the father never stopped looking for him. From Genesis to Revelation, God the Father, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit are the original evangelists. All the way back in the garden, in Genesis chapter 3, as soon as man falls, what does God start saying? Adam, where are you? You have the voice of the Father already looking for a lost humanity as soon as he's fallen. Do you think that God didn't really know where Adam was? No, sometimes God asks you questions like, where are you putting your need for acceptance? Because he wants you to realize that you're lost and you need to be found. Adam, where are you? Genesis through Revelation, the whole narrative of the Bible is a God searching for lost humanity. I want to talk to you tonight about the embrace of the Father that restores right identity. And I want to talk to you about actually staying in that embrace, staying right here close to the heart of God until the question of who you are and whose you are, who you belong to, actually hits your heart and begins to wash over your mind that those words that we were saying, I am chosen, not forsaken, I am a child of God, become more than just words, well, in our case, that weren't on the screen, but like words that would be on a screen that you would just speak into the air and actually become the truth of who you are. Because it changes how you sing it when you're actually singing from the posture of knowing that's who I am. The embrace of the Father is the most tender and the safest place in all the world. Because when we don't feel liked and loved by God, what do we do? What did they do in the garden as soon as they fell from grace? They hid. And what do we do when we think God doesn't like us? We hide from Him. And that masks itself in all different types of ways, right? But the freest, safest place in all the world is right in the arms of the Father where you're both completely known and completely loved. And that revelation will totally rock and change your world when you realize it's not just a place of being loved until He finds out who you really are. But that He foreknew you and He still chose you and wanted to draw you unto Himself. Romans 8. Wow. Because a lot of us in our relationships... I used to do this all the time. I moved like a ton of times when I was a kid and I was in a military family. So I had this real transitional mindset where I always thought I was just a couple months or a couple years from moving. So I never wanted to get too far in relationship with people. So this would manifest itself in my dating relationships. I'd get a girl like that I'd fall in love with. You know, she'd have feelings for me. Six months later, I'd break it off. Why? Because I felt like there was only a matter of time before we just split, Right. Same with friendships. I only want to go this far with you, but not any further because I don't want to get my heart too attached and then get pulled away from you. But the real reason most of us do that is that you'll like me when you first meet me, but I'm afraid that if you actually get to know me, you won't like me anymore. And a lot of us approach God that way, right? So we kind of like flirt around on the surface of a relationship with God rather than ever really diving deep because we come into a knowledge that he actually knew us and all the terrible stuff we'd ever done before we ever even came to him. And yet he loves us perfectly in that place. And I want you to think about what the 
this prodigal son smells like, what he looks like in this moment. He is at his smelliest. He's been sleeping in the pig's den, you know, sleeping in their slop and their manure, all that stuff. It says he has to put sandals on his feet, which means, have you ever seen someone who's like walked around for like some period of time with no shoes on, the dirt between their toes, all the nastiness? He is smelling disgusting. But think about where he gets pulled. Boom! Right against the father's chest. And I want you to think about the, the memory, the thing that maybe you still have guilt or shame about in your life, that stench being all over your life. But in that moment where you're completely known, the father pulling you against his chest and saying, in that place, I loved you perfectly. The beauty of the gospel is while we were still sinners, Christ loved us. The father sent his son to die for us. He didn't wait until you earned your way back and then sent his son. He sent him in your worst place. And all this happens, this whole embrace, the ring, the robe, uh, you know, go kill the fattened calf as the father is actually canceling the son's speech. And I was just wondering, even, you know, preparing for this, does anybody struggle with internal dialogue? You don't have to, like, raise your hand. I'd be pretty confident to say that almost every person in this room struggles with that just warfare, nonstop, going on in our head all the time. All the time. Just the thoughts. All the time. And here's what I want to tell you. The father doesn't need to hear your opinion of yourself. What the Father wants to do is let you hear His opinion of you. But sometimes we need to get into the arms of the Father and stop speaking even internally long enough that we can actually hear what He's speaking over us. That's why getting in the presence of worshipers, singing these truths out, putting yourself in the Word daily. The Bible talks about the washing of the water of the Word. You know, some people would say Christians are brainwashed. I'd say, I need a good washing every now and again, right? Because my mind can get so dirty. I can get so full of the world. I need the water of the word to wash over my mind from time to time. To be lavished by the love of the Father so I know whose I am and who I am. So I believe tonight that the Father wants to cancel your speech and get you to partner with what he's saying. Rather than that constant noise and chatter of your own identity, crisis, feelings of shame and unworthiness. And ultimately, he wants to make you a son and a daughter. And just to, again, we're talking about reading through the Bible too. I, as it relates to this story, so often we just read through Bible events, like boom, 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 boom. And we don't let them breathe long enough to let the weight of what's actually happening in the story settle on us. Like you could read about David's anointed and then all of a sudden he's fighting Goliath and then he's on the throne and not realize that there was like 20 years in between those events. See, sometimes you've got to read between the lines. And I think about, even as it relates to this story, I think about, okay, he's walking back. And then the father, you know, sees him in the distance and psh, hug, psh, kiss on the forehead, snap the fingers, get him a ring and a robe. Okay, party inside. And it's like done in 30 seconds. And I forget sometimes that this is a father who thought that his son was dead. And all of a sudden I want to hit pause. I want to let the passage breathe a little bit. I'm about to be a father for the first time in my life in February. My wife's going to have our first kid. And before this kid is even born, there's going to be so many prayers invested into this kid's life. And I think about it like nonstop. And now I'm trying to imagine that my kid is, I don't know, 16, 17, 18 years old. They've left the house, haven't seen him in years, and I'm thinking that they're dead. But I'm not completely sure, so I'm thinking about it all the time and longing for the moment I'm going to have with my kid. Do you think that's going to be a 30-second bam, 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 bam embrace? Or do you think that from the moment I see my kid coming from the window? That as I start running towards him, everything in my being 
is rating itself in a type of joy expressing itself in probably like deep and embarrassing sobbing. And I forget my surroundings and what other people are thinking as I wrap myself up, not in a hug, not like a bro hug where I just kind of pat him on the back. But we're talking an embrace. The original language used for him kissing him is not a one time peck on the forehead, but kiss repeatedly. So you start to picture this son who smells disgusting, is wrapped in guilt and shame. And the father's just standing there as the city onlookers know that he has every right to stone his son and to cast him off and to keep him outside the city. But the father's just sitting there, can't stop kissing this son's forehead as the tears run down his face and he confers sonship to his son. And all the servants are wondering, what's he going to do? And he says, hey, he's dressed in filthy rags right now. Let's get these rags off and put a robe on him. Let's get a signet ring and put it on his finger. Dress his feet with sandals and that fattened calf. It's time to celebrate for my son was dead and he's come home. I wonder if you have personally in this room walked into that embrace with the father. Because I knew for the better part of my Christian life what it meant to be a servant of God. But really just in the last couple of years, the father gave me a revelation of who he is as a good father. And it changed my walk completely. Like I used to go through all the Christian motions and check my box and check my box and check my box, read the Bible, pray, do this, do that, go to church, all the stuff. One day I was sitting in the place of prayer and I just said, Father, what's on your heart today? And like, boom, instantly he took me back to remember when I was like four or five and my natural dad was in the military, like I said, and he used to leave for months at a time for these training exercises. I was really close to my dad. So I remember when it was almost time for him to come back home, I would stand at the window and when I wouldn't see his car pull up in the driveway, I'd get really sad. Like, oh, you know, like it's going to be a little more time. And the father said, I remember seeing you in that place. I want you to know in this relationship, it's the exact opposite. And every day I stand at the window. And when you don't come and meet with me, I'm sad. You know how that changed the way I approach time in the scriptures and how I approach prayer? Because it's no longer check my box to earn something from God. Now it's the place where I go to meet with the father who's already there waiting for me. Wow, that will change the way you approach Scripture. As the Father, day after day after day, lavished love on me, it totally changed the way that I relate to God. But here's the thing. When I was 14, I read, about 13, 14 years old, got radically saved, gave my life to Jesus, was all for Him through high school. I got to college. My mom got MS and breast cancer. My dad had an affair on my mom in the same year he went to Iraq. All like in the same year. It was all my first year of college when I was going through one of those major transition periods that I was talking about. So all the sources of security that I had in my life, even though I knew Jesus, kind of went out the window. So I started looking for my identity in relationships with girls. And to speed up the whole intimacy thing, I would usually cross boundaries and cross lines to get to a place where I felt close with people, right? And I started to put my identity in all the wrong places. And I'll spare you all the details, but basically enough to say it's easier sometimes if you've never known the truth and then you turn your back on it than it is to have walked with Jesus, make a bunch of mistakes. And then when I came out of it and the word that was planted in my heart from reading scriptures when I was a teenager started to come back and resurface in my life. And God began to say, that's not who you are. It's not who I've called you to be. You're made for more than that. You're a son. I didn't believe him. I did not believe him. I just want to keep that speech going in my head. Oh, you can't forgive me. You know, I knew I, I, I messed up real bad. And I would just beat myself up like day and night. Like, and I thought that I was being humble. I thought that I was pleasing God by covering myself in shame. So you know what I had to do at one point? I had to decide that I was going to choose to accept my chosenness. 
that I was going to have to choose to accept my sonship, that I was going to have to choose to partner with what God was saying rather than what I felt about myself, even though what I felt was rooted in some type of reality based on what I had done. At some point, I had to de determine in my heart that I was going to let what Jesus did in my place mean more than what I had done, what I thought that I deserved. It's the reality of Isaiah 53. I'm going to flip there real quick. This is the reason why the prodigal son can be accepted the way that he is, because God is all love, but he's also a perfectly just God, which means that somebody had to pay the price. It was Jesus. Isaiah 53. Check this out. My servant grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender green shoot, like a root in dry ground. There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquitted with the deepest grief. And we turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. Yet it was our weakness he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. Yet he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us, emphasis on all of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We have left God's paths to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. He was oppressed and treated harshly. Yet he never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep is silent before his shears. He did not open his mouth. Unjustly condemned, he was led away. No one cared that he died without descendants, that his life was cut short in midstream. But he was struck down for the rebellion of my people. He had done no wrong and had never deceived anyone. But he was buried like a criminal. He was put in a rich man's grave, but it was the Lord's plan to crush him and cause him grief. Check this out. Yet when his life is made an offering for sin, he will have many descendants. That's you and me. He will enjoy a long life and the Lord's good plan will prosper in his hands. And when he sees all that is accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. And because of his experience, my righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous. For he will heal or sorry, bear all their sins. I will give him the honors of a victorious soldier because he exposed himself to death. He was counted among the rebels and he bore the sins of many and interceded for rebels. Maybe the next time you're tempted to beat yourself up and the enemy is called the accuser of the brethren for a reason. Day and night, night and day, he stands before the Father, before in the throne room, and he accuses you. He hurls accusations at you. And he does it not just before the Father, he does it in your mind all the time. And at some point, instead of choosing to partner with the enemy and continue to just beat myself up, right? I have to choose that I'm going to let what Jesus did in my place be enough. Like, what, did that verse not say that he was beaten in your place? Did it not say that he went to the whipping post in your place? So why do we continue to tie ourselves to the whipping post and beat ourselves up mentally? And why do we continue to give ourselves to the opinions of other broken people who usually don't know who they are either? Because most of the insecurities and the ways that people treat you is a reflection of how they feel about themselves. So maybe it's time we give our opinion back to the one who loved us and searched for us from the beginning, who's always had our best interest in mind. What do we need to do in response to this message? I'm getting ready to close out, so if you don't mind hopping back up there. To walk in this reality, it's not 
just a level of saying, okay, I'm okay with sin. Sin doesn't matter. No, sin is a big deal before God. What this son did to his father, it, it was disgraceful. It was rude. It, it totally showed no respect or no honor for the father. And every time we choose to participate in sin, we openly turn our back on God and we say, we've chosen our own way. We want to live a distance from you. So we have to accept responsibility for the things that we've done wrong. We have to have a moment of coming to our senses, if you will. It's like the key moment in that story. He came to his senses, so he turned around and decided, I'm going to start walking home. But when we get home, we need to give the things that we've done wrong back to God. And then we have to accept. You know that everything in this, this book has already been paid for. All of faith is apprehending. That word apprehending means to grab, to take hold of, to make your own. That's why the Lord taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. Someone to stand in the gap, to pull heaven down, to pull the realities of this book into their life. I could stand here all day and say, hey, bro, I've got $100 for you. It'd be foolish if you didn't take that. I know you instantly got excited. But if you had closed fists and refused to accept it from me, it would be madness. This has already been given to you, already been paid for for you, but it's upon you to choose to receive it. We have to give them to God. We have to accept his free gift. And then we have to choose every day to claim our chosenness, our acceptance. Every day. Every day. Because so often we make Christianity about one-time experiences. Like, yeah, I've heard it, so therefore now it's a reality. No, every day I have to work to make this a reality in my life. To choose this again. To put myself in the presence of God and hear what the Father is speaking over me. Remember one time, and I'll close with this story. My wife had fallen asleep on the couch, one bedroom apartment. I might have shared this with you guys once before last year. Forgive me if I did. Uh, she had fallen asleep on the couch. I was like, oh, I'll be a great husband. I'm going to carry her from the couch to the bed. And like instantly, sometimes, uh, I'm just going to share this. You guys know that you can hear the, the Father's voice. John 10, 27 says, my sheep will know my voice. I'll call them by name. They won't be let out by another. Sometimes God's speaking more than we're listening. So I go to pick up my wife and I turn around and start carrying her. And instantly like, I hear this thing in my spirit that's like, so many times when you've fallen asleep in a place you weren't supposed to be, I picked you up and I carried you back to where you're supposed to be. And I'm like, oh. And I like, instantly I just start thinking about all these places in my life where the Father had picked me up and carried me back where I was supposed to go. And I start singing. And I'm going to ask you to help me out with this, Alex. It's the first line because I can't sing at all. And uh, I started singing over my wife how he loves us. And I'm just singing it over her. And she's sleeping. She has no idea what's going on. But I'm having this moment with the father. And again, he says, you have no idea how many times you've been asleep. And I have sung my love over you in the dead of night, like a lullaby, like a good father. I'm just saying, even when you were unconscious, even when you weren't paying attention, I was just singing my love over you. So if you don't mind just singing that, I'm going to go into the second part of the story. After we sing a couple lines, you guys can sing it with him. Or just let that love just begin to wash over you.
singing this over my wife in my broken, terrible voice, but just getting rocked by the Father, tears streaming down my face, and just realizing that there were so many times He loved me, and I wasn't paying attention, I was asleep. And sometimes not physically asleep, but spiritually just not paying attention and partnering with the Father was wanting to sing over me. And I wake up the next morning, she's still in bed, and I go into the closet, and I'm praying, and I read Zephaniah 3.17. You're probably like, Zephaniah what? One of those minor prophet books we don't read all the time. Zephaniah 3.17 says this, For the Lord your God is living among you. He is a mighty Savior. He will take delight in you with gladness. With his love, he'll calm all your fears. And he'll rejoice over you with joyful songs. So this is the next morning. I finish my quiet time. I start getting ready for the day. And this like has never happened before. All of a sudden, my wife bursts through the door that separates our bedroom and the bathroom. And she just like runs into my arms. And she's like, I can tell there's like something wrong. And she's just clinging to me. And I'm like, what is going on? And she can't talk for like a couple minutes. She's just holding me. And she goes, I, I was having a panic attack. And I was like, oh, well, I, I've been up praying. And I've actually got a perfect verse for you. And I start reading Zephaniah 3.17 over her. And all of a sudden, my song changed since she was now conscious and awake from He Loves Us. So I started singing my love over my wife and Alex. If I don't, you don't mind me putting you on the spot, I started to sing, I love you in that same tune as, yeah, he loves us. Yeah, I love you. And even as I'm singing over my wife, the father says, so many times when you've been in a panic attack or you've been a fearful in a night terror in the middle of the night wrestling over all the issues of life, you know, Jesus is called the great intercessor. He lives forever to make intercession for us. Basically, that means he lives in the place of prayer to stand in the gap for you and me. So when you don't realize it, he is praying for you. There's actually recorded prayers in the scripture out of the mouth of Jesus for all who would ever put their faith in him. So like my wife, when she burst through the door and needed someone to meet her there with encouragement and comfort, the father said so many times, I'm waiting for you with a verse. And so many times, first person as I'm singing, yeah, I love you, over my wife, the father saying, I want to sing. Sometimes we sing songs to God, and sometimes God sings songs over us. Both are equally important because it confirms our identity. And the father is so pleased when his sons and daughters finally realize who they are in his eyes. Do you mind just singing that out? Just change that pronoun from he to I. Just receive this as the father's song over you tonight.
me to say I am who you say I am. We're going to do one last activity. I want you just to keep your eyes closed. This is going to sound really silly, but if you do it with a sincere heart, I've seen grown men get rocked by this when they hear the Father start to speak over them. I want you to say, just really ask in your spirit, God, if you had one hour to spend with me right now, what would you want to do? You might be surprised by what he says. Don't dismiss it. I asked God this one time. He said basketball. And I was like, that's not God. <laughs> I'm scared of basketball. Ask him, what do you want to do with me, Father? God, if you had one hour with me, what would you choose to do with me tonight? Take your time. Whenever you've got that thing in your head, I want you to ask him, Father, and this is when the light goes off. Why did you choose that activity? something from God like he gave you an activity no matter how ridiculous it sounded and he told you why he wants to do that when you just gently slip your hand up so nobody can see you around I just want to know who's who's hearing something we'll give you guys time just need to get comfortable sitting with God letting him answer the important questions over our life He said basketball. I was like, that's not God. Like I said, I'm not good at basketball. And he said, yeah, but I know that you really enjoy it. And you tend to avoid things in your life that you feel like you're not good at because you think that I judge you based on performance. But that's not how I cultivate experiences with you. I love to share experiences with you where you just have joy in your heart. And then I started to think about all the things I had missed out on life because I felt like I wasn't good enough to do them. And I missed the opportunity to encounter my father in the everyday moments. I want to let his love just wash over you. He's a good father. He's so for you tonight. He wants to possess every part of your heart. He's called a jealous God because he's jealous for you. 